Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Jeremy Hopkins. Jeremy is Director of Legal Operations at Content Square and has worked in the legal ecosystem since the late 80s gaining a unique blend of experience in senior leadership roles in-house, in barristers' chambers, alternative legal service providers, and global law firms. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Good to see you. Thanks, Alex. Jeremy, we got to spend some time together at a London uh, dinner we were we were co-hosting with Ironclad a few months ago, and it was great to get to know you then, but uh, we didn't cover uh, where you grew up in that conversation. So tell, tell us a little bit about uh, where, where you grew up as a kid. It's not that exciting, actually. See, we're having a conversation now that the, the difference is I don't have a glass of wine in my hand. So uh, <laughs> so you're going to get a more guarded set of answers. Well, free, free, feel free to go and grab one <laughs> well, actually, after, yeah. after noon. So, yeah. <laughs> well, we can pretend it's a podcast, right? We can say it's in the evening. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. I grew up in uh, in Berkshire, where I, I haven't moved in my life from Berkshire, or other than Hampshire, which is across the water. So I, it's pretty dull, actually. Um, Wokingham in Berkshire, I now live in Reading in Berkshire, and I've kind of just spent my whole life, mainly because actually I've, I've worked in London, um, and it's just one of those places that it ain't that great, but it actually it's a really good best of both worlds. You're near London, there's lots of countryside around, there's a river, so it's kind of haven't needed to move anywhere, really, which is a, some ways I wish I had explored, but uh, equally there's been a reason for that, so... Uh, Nothing that exciting on the, on that journey. And how would you have described yourself as a as a kid? A childhood of two halves. I, I think I was pretty much very quiet, geeky, and small, and you'd have hardly noticed me. And I get, I think I got to a point, maybe the age of about ten or eleven, where nothing to do with physical transformation. I think just due to people, I ended up getting to know. I got a bit sporty and into a bit more activity and stuff. So um, I'm still small, but it just gave me a lot of confidence just due to people around me. It's quite a good lesson, actually, in how, how lucky, it's just pure luck, who you get in with at a certain age that got me into activity that's kind of you know, stayed with me for the rest of my life. To the 100%. And moving forward a little bit then, maybe for the benefit of our, our US listeners as well, I know you had early experiences as a, as a clerk and practice manager in uh, barristers chambers can you maybe start by giving us a bit of context about what that sort of role entails firstly and then secondly what you took away from it or what has stood to you from it i'm really pleased you've asked this because it's funny when people ask me these days about my career i, I just focus on the research and legal arts and probably only in recent years that i've actually realized the real value of that early experience that I kind of, it's almost so far down the CV that I forget about it. But I spent the first 20 years of my career working as a barrister's clerk. So the key things to know, and actually it's not just overseas, a lot of people don't know how barrister's chambers work, but it's a collection of self-employed individuals sharing expenses, overhead premises and uh, and people. But they're all self-employed lawyers, freelancers. Funnily enough, it's like an old traditional model that's been going since the 1400s. In the last 15 years, we've seen legal services organisations crop up saying they're innovative with this model. But it's quite strange how barristers have just been quietly running this model for a long time. But it creates some interesting challenges. So your role as a clerk, on the face of it, subservient because you're paid by them, basically running all the, the all the operations and all the non-legal elements. So barristers are specialists, they're like trial lawyers, 
they do advocacy and advice on matters relating to advocacy and litigation, but typically in very specialist areas. So they're very sort of elite lawyers in their in their fields. So your job is to, they're paying you to do stuff, but a lot of your job is around customer service, service delivery, which often conflicts with what they want. So you've got a, a client who wants something done cheaply and quickly. They want a bigger fee and they're busy. So you're in the middle of this, yet they're paying you to do stuff, but you've got to make things happen. So you're kind of thrust into this environment without any training. You're, you're feeling quite insignificant because they're all clever and revered and, and, and massively qualified. And you end up having to just sort of intuitively build these sort of influencing skills that usually come down to no matter how clever people are, they're all humans and they all deal with things in a certain way. So you learn sort of very subtle and nuanced influencing and you learn sometimes these people who are difficult, inverted commas, are actually the really predictable ones. So you end up learning to have to make things happen and get what you want, but without having actually any power, you have to do it through pure influence. And I think a lot of people in in that field who still are in that field, I think have developed these skills and they're really quite special and valuable skills and without even realizing it. So that's kind of a, a fortunate byproduct that's sort of unintended. Also within that, you, you tend to learn, okay, these guys are so clever, but hang on, why are they paying me to do things that I think are easy? And it just built that realization that every, everyone's got their different perspective. And there's real, it's quite easy to undervalue what you do because it's obvious to you and it's not obvious to someone else. And it's um, that applies across a whole range of skills, but no more so than in the kind of non-lawyer, lawyer sort of dynamic, the whole marketing piece, the whole project management, the finance, the strategy, all elements of running the business that isn't the practice of law was dealt with by, um, by a barrister's club. So that's a kind of almost the structural element of it and how it's created an impact on what I've learned. But the other element is the actual function of a barrister's club. There's all sorts of very wide ranging roles, but I regarded the most important part of the role is your customers are other lawyers. So in our profession, solicitors and barristers are the two fields. So the solicitors, the generalist, my job would be picking up the phone because we had phones in those days that you spoke on, answering a phone to a solicitor who would be a specialist lawyer calling me to say, hey, I've got this complex commercial dispute involving IP. Um, we've got this kind of client in this sector. We need this work done before then. We need a certain type of person who's going to be bullish with it. all of these things. And my job was to actually work out who is the best person to do it do the deal, do the pricing, get all the papers in, make sure the service was delivered, make sure it was done on time, do the billing, all of the work around that. Interesting enough, even nowadays, you don't get... So the conversation I'm, I'm having is with a sophisticated buyer. I don't think you get that many law firms when a client will call and ask for something, whether or not there's that level of scrutiny, who's the right person, can we agree the fee, all the nuance, they just kind of deliver it. There was a real sort of focus on some real nuances of legal service delivery as part of that role that again, for 20 years, that was my job, not just doing the deal and here's the right person and selling them the right person. Or if the person they didn't they wanted wasn't available to say to them, here's someone else who will be just as good. And you had to do that in a way that's, you know, people are putting a lot of trust in you. So you couldn't get away with blagging it or just selling the person who wasn't busy because they were no good. You had to really do your job well and properly. So there was a whole load of sort of different sort of nuanced dynamics in there that you had to had to manage. And again, it became intuitive. You had to do it. It's fascinating because I think people are probably who are aware of that distinction in the UK and Ireland of the, the distinction between barristers and solicitors and barristers are the ones up in court wearing the, the wig and gown in a very traditional sense. And that might lead you to believe it is a very antiquated profession. But what you've articulated there is a very modern approach to how you ran the practice, led operations, negotiated, ensured the right resource was doing the right type of work. And there are so many similarities and I imagine skills you developed that were really helpful in your subsequent career as a legal ops leader. 
moving on though, I was interested to understand because you you've got such an interesting background. Your subsequent experience in alternative legal service providers on the law firm side as well, presumably kind of further broadened your perspective and and kind of built out a, a wider understanding of the overall ecosystem. Very much so. And actually, it was the Legal Services Act that came into effect or came into practical effect in 2012 on the launch of Riverview Law that subsequently became EY Law at that time, where the, the foundation of that business was using scalable resource, so not having a whole load of bums on seats that you've got to pay, but using barristers' chambers. So it was actually through that and actually through my presence on social media and blogging and everything that I, that I got sort of spotted and noticed and, and met Carl Chapman and Adam Shutkeever, the founders, and, and started as one of the early team members building that business. And again, it's a classic example. I was a bit daunted um, at the time by these pretty revered, successful business people saying, hey, come and help, come and get this business off the ground. And it was worrying. But then I realized that I'd have these moments where I'd be sitting in a room with these guys and they're thinking, hang on, I'm the only person here who knows what to do with this box of papers and this client who wants this done. I know all this. I can do it like that. And they don't. And it just made me think, oh, hold on a minute. This is this is where the, where the value is. So so it, it was a great way of just sort of realizing, you know, the wider use of those skills. The, the other element, I guess, is from from pretty early days, it was a service set out at outsourcing parts of an in-house legal function. And you can't sell that to people without understanding in depth how legal function works because you're you're effectively consulting before you can sell your product. People aren't just going to say, okay, this is my legal team, we'll, 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 uh, we'll outsource it instead. So it really gave for, for a really intense sort of immersion into the in-house lawyer's shoes um, in that market. So over that phase of time, it, it effectively was legal ops. You're understanding how legal teams work. We were putting in a product that, that captured data, pushed process, over time, push technology. It wasn't all about technology in the early days. So in a way, it was. I, I regarded it as pretty much what I'm doing now um, back in 2012 in what we were doing to build a, a business case for people to, to buy this outsource service with the whole combination of people, process and technology. It's fascinating because I was only talking to Mary O'Carroll from, from Ironclad earlier this week. And, and I know you, you met her as well in, in London at the dinner we were both at. And we were talking about a pattern we've observed in the UK and Europe and Australia as well, where there seems to be more of a trend where a lot of legal ops people are former practicing in-house lawyers who are moved into the legal ops role. That comes with its advantages, obviously, but it is different to the US, I, I think, where where people are coming from a broader and different backgrounds. And obviously, you are coming to legal operations with, as you've articulated so well there, a very well-rounded skill set as well as a good domain understanding, which is somewhat unique, I would say, in kind of setting you up for your subsequent career as a legal ops leader. And I'm interested, like, how do you think then, when you step into an in-house team, how do you think about building a strategy, a legal ops strategy for the legal department? Um, interesting. I totally agree. It's not by design, but your observation that I've landed up in a place that's so well suited for legal arts, that's not my career master plan. It's just happened. This is the way the market's gone and what I stumbled into. And by the way, none of this is this by design. I didn't study law. Uh, I didn't go to university. It's 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 where I stumbled. But you're absolutely, absolutely right, because it does all align. It's just a natural evolution. So going on, on to your question, really, that for me, the, the thing that it's a, it's a big wide question about about the strategy, but the obvious starting point is, is you're there to serve a business. What's that business's strategy and what's its what's its priorities? But for me, the, some of the early things or the biggest thing to take into account is, is that you, you're going to, always going to have a limited amount of resource to, to some degree. So the most important thing is understanding risk. 
and understanding how to calibrate risk and to align that with what the priorities of the business are, because you've only ever got a certain amount of resource and you've got to focus that properly. And then the second sort of strand, if you like, of understanding the risk is scalability. If there are things you identify as lower risk or where you can manage risk, those are things that from the word go, you've got the ability to scale them. If you don't understand that and, and how you can use that, if you like to adjust, not to adjust your scope and workload, you're never going to have scope. You're not going to be sustainable. I hate it when I hear people say, oh, we've got to do more with less. No, you don't. If you understand, you just do less, but you you have to decide it's your job in a way to lead the business and explaining what you can do, what you can't do and articulate what the trade-offs are. But if you just accept, we'll do more and just give us more. That really is, in a way, that's some of the private practice mindset. Generate demand, just be busy. That's great. That's not the right answer. And you won't serve the business as well unless you understand that from the beginning. And you need that mindset. Going back to the strategy question, you need that mindset in conjunction with where's the business going? You know, we as a business I'm in now has gone from a, a massive growth phase to a now sort of consolidating grown up phase. And there are changes in priorities and, and, and things and elements of, of, of that that you've got to adjust. But you can't do any of that by just doing more. You have to adjust and understand these dynamics. It's so true. And I don't know if some of it is um, a hangover from in-house lawyers having started their life in law firms where their work product is their time and they never say no to work as a firm and and as an individual and more is always better. And it was a real revelation for me when we started Brightflag almost a decade ago, like principles like agile software development, where it is that core thing of you need to be very focused. You need to pick a handful of things that you execute really well on at any given point in time. And the skill for any business leader, I think, as you as you said there, is understanding what is going to move the dial to the greatest extent for the business. And I think observation of mine is sometimes people will defer to what they understand is just best practice as to what does every other legal team do? What systems do they implement? Or... There can be a lot of noise and kind of identifying the signal within that noise around like there's a lot of nice to have things you could spend a lot of time and energy on doing for the legal team. But is it actually going to help the business achieve its goals? And I'm interested, are you able to kind of highlight for us any specific kind of business objectives that led to specific legal ops projects for yourself and your team? I suppose I've just got a more general example is, for example, in our team, it hasn't always been the case, but more recently we built a product legal team where we have a legal team that embeds themselves in the product development process, proactively going out, looking for what's going on and putting themselves in the places where we can manage legal and privacy issues arising from product development, which is a key strategic requirement in a technology business that's that's cutting edge. Whereas that is no doubt at the expense of, you know, we've got good, we've got well resourced in all areas, but of course that resource could be spent on contracts faster, more employment. People. So, so again, that's just an example of how a different dynamic for a business will create a need for a, a resource in a, in a certain place. The classic answer and the straight answer is yes, we have a CLM system. It's been fully implemented. It, it, it's a, it was a huge game changer and it's kind of almost, we don't notice it. If we took it away, it would just be the whole place would fall apart. We don't notice it. So it doesn't feel like it's a, it's almost like a hygiene thing, having a CLM, which is, I know it's a luxury for some, so I don't say that with a, with with any kind of, a, I, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm, I'm taking it for granted. But I, I think in terms of project impact, I, I found the ones that are more for me personally, and also for embedding the team and really showing the team's value, the real cross-functional projects that mean you have to get involved in, you have to build relationships, you have to understand lots of different processes and how they will interact across the business, way outside of the normal scope of, of legal. 
I guess my my favorite example is maybe two or just shortly after I joined Content Square, which was about two years ago. We were small enough not to have a dedicated procurement function. Legal ops led on building a, a company-wide procurement process, starting with an intake form. But that whole changing a company where people just bought stuff or got their manager to approve to a much more centralized data capture, risk managing process was a huge change for, for everyone. It almost forced us to go out and get to know all the different functions within the business, how they operate, um, their approval processes, and build that into a quest sort of portal and then build that into a review process that involves both legal privacy security teams financial approval so something like that for me and actually technology it ended up with our clm actually with a google form it's all we've got a big mature procurement team now so none of this happens anymore but going through that whole process as well as building understanding the, the relationships it, it kind of kick-started us as a legal team really being well recognized in the business as people who are taking the time to listen, understand, reduce friction and constantly evolve. But equally, dig our heels in when people say, well, this is a bit of a pain. Do we have to do this? Yes, you do, because mm -hmm. this is our process. This is rigor. This is governance. It might be a pain, but if you're going to spend the company's money, you've got to tell us this yeah. and check. So, so it's that whole balance we've gone through. So that for me, that's just a great example. I've got a few others, but that's just a great example of the projects I really enjoy because you you are really you know going out of your scope because you need to to understand how the business operates and, and embed yourself within that. And in some ways, it's it's kind of I love the whole idea that people talk about having a legal ticketing system, so you've everything got thing. But actually, it doesn't really work like that because legal people if people want IT help, this they know they want IT. If people want marketing support, they you don't always know. You certainly don't want legal. You don't yeah. always know you need it. We have to find our way into processes, as I said, with the product team, and embed ourselves both relationship wise and in, in processes. So we're there to you know to deal with the things that are needed rather than just people who come to us. There's so much in what you said there, like that immediately jumped out at me as like such an astute move embedding experienced lawyers in your product team so that rather than a product getting designed, iterated upon and launched and then realizing it has a fundamental privacy flaw or is infringing IP in some way, whatever the issue might be, you're already at risk because it's in the hands of your customers having your lawyers involved in those conversations early is just incredibly astute and is really what I think many legal departments should try try to do and aspire to is, is that proactive engagement. And in addition to that, something that jumps out at me, your kind of procurement initiative, which had a company-wide impact. What's exciting, I think, about legal ops as well is that there is no narrow definition of what projects may or may not sit with you or, or that you may not get involved with. And it was something a former guest on the podcast, Stephanie Lamoureux, who leads legal operations at Live Nation, said to me, she said, for her, the litmus test is, does this initiative touch at least and benefit at least three departments within the organization? And that's a great sign that this is probably should be pretty high up the priority list. And what you did there certainly sounds like that is the case. We're obviously at an interesting stage, Jeremy, as well, in the in in that generative AI is a buzzword across business generally at the moment and specifically within legal there's a lot of hype around its potential application how are you thinking about that or kind of separating the kind of buzz from is there any value in this for you in the short to medium term love this question um i i, I describe it actually generative ai and, and ai generally and i've been using ai for, for a good number of years on contract analytics and stuff i would just say it's quite useful it's no game changer it's okay it's not too expensive. It, I can I can find uses for it. Typically, if you don't mind it being wrong sometimes, if, or, or if you're going to check its work, 
you can use it for things so it makes a bit of a difference it's not game changing and for me actually i'm i'm in a way it frustrates me that it's taking the focus away i'm working very hard to if we build our processes our data structure in a certain way the use case for any kind of ai to, to find all the moving parts and the uncertain bits gets smaller and smaller you know i can quite easily interrogate our contract database now and and work out you know 60 or 70 percent of our contracts what they say without using any ai because we've got structured data fields that'll tell me so now i've only got the 30 percent i need to check if i'm looking for a particular exception i can run those through or i might be able to find a reason why some of those are outside the scope of whatever it is we need to to interrogate so already you've got okay so we've got an ai tool that's only going to make a difference to that 30 percent instead of nothing mm-hmm. um, and and actually in the future we keep building our processes so we've got more things built into our contracting process mm-hmm. that capture the right structured data we need to know on certain other things that are relevant to our products the use of data those those sort of things so the more we do that the more we go into the future the mm-hmm. use case for, for gets smaller and smaller, uh, but it's still useful. I mean, I, I use it a lot for, I use AI, forget generative AI. I use AI a lot for finding chunks of contracts and interrogating mm-hmm. certain sort of nuanced questions, mm-hmm. but knowing that these are questions where we've either got to check them or it doesn't matter too much if we get 10% wrong. So, so it's all good, but it's not, it should, you know, we, we, I don't, we're not going to pay a lot of money for something like that. It's just another tool that works quite well with, with conditions attached. Generative AI is interesting at the same sort of parameters applied. For me, the only interesting thing is what I'm really looking at the moment is internal knowledge, being able to sort of create a, a, a really meaningful chatbot with low maintenance that for an internal audience that effectively feeds itself on your own internal guidance. So you're controlling the data it's got. And for me, for scalability, that might be a very powerful thing as we get bigger. But again, going back to my first point, comparing it with the best of what you can do without it. If I spent some time now on a perfect suite of internet pages, going through UX from the who's asking, where the question really did that well, the difference between that and a brilliant AI chatbot is going to be a lot smaller than my currently now decent set of online guidance for the, for the business, but not perfect. So maybe if we made that perfect, then it'd be, what do we really want to spend on a chatbot that might be marginally better? I don't know. That's a scalability question and it's a return on investment. Well, if it's cheap, yes. If it's really expensive, no, and so on. So these these are all things that are you've got to calibrate them in the context of what you what you can do without. And I, I just see too much hype coming from the leap from we're, we're doing nothing because we, we just don't do it to what it can do and not looking at all the options in the middle. I think that's very astute and the kind of scenario in which lawyers are going to be fully eliminated is not on the horizon. It's it's a tool, as you say, in the in the broader toolkit that can automate processes to a greater extent, kind of hone in on areas that you need to focus on, enable you to move at a greater pace, but it can't be kind of entirely relied upon for uh, for a finished product necessarily. And obviously, a subject close to my heart, given it was the kind of origins of Bright Flag, where we were using supervised machine learning to analyze legal invoices, to automate invoice review, automatically classify how work was being resourced, or pricing analysis and uh, resourcing analysis on legal work. So as you say, it it is beneficial, but I think it comes back to what is the problem you're trying to solve and what's the best way through technology people process to solve that it, it'll certainly be interesting to see how, how how that ecosystem evolves and i suppose given given my background in kind of legal spend e-billing space i'm always interested to to hear how legal ops leaders relationship with their finance colleagues works for you and how, how do you find that dynamic and how do you think about building those relationships the good thing about it is I think with legal, you have loads of potential overlaps and, and a lot in common with finance. So we certainly build relationships through things like being part of the 
process on on both on the sales and the vendor side there are approvals right we we build processes that embed those in them so for example we won't review a uh, you know a sales contract until it's gone through these gates first so we're always having that discussion and, and making sure the requirements of finance fit into our processes so straight away you're aligning on on, on a sort of joint um, objective and then the other side is actually when we're if you like an internal client of finance when we're uh, getting approval of outside council spend again building a actually two two things what it covers both angles just having good data having good pure data in, in a sort of clear and structured form is you're talking their language but also just being able to work in a way the way we manage outside council spend building a system that automates what they want in the way they want it it makes it easy for our end to push things through so again just speaking the same language making it low friction for for, for both of you it's a fair question because it's quite it's not always an easy finance teams work in a certain way mm. just because of their status in any business they tend to say this is the way we do things you've got to uh, you've got to uh, adjust to our way of doing things and you can't exactly go to the cfo and say no i don't like that so yeah. it's not that they're unhelpful it's, it's in a way it's kind of you've got to roll with that right and it's not that difficult because that's what we do in legal ops we, we you know we make sure we integrate with people and use technology to take the strain in 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 doing that and I think as someone has highlighted to me, legal ops is really the kind of translator and the intermediary between the lawyers who probably have even less of the kind of finance skill set and understanding of, of how finance view the world and those finance colleagues who maybe certainly maybe at the FP&A team level, for instance, don't fully understand the nuances of outside counsel spend, hourly billing, these things that add complexity to procuring legal services, trying to like that you can't necessarily budget for legal work in an identical way to other categories of, of spend. And legal ops can play that role of as the kind of translator between the two and, and the intermediary to to ensure that you're you're all on the same page. That's such a good point. Just the whole idea of opening a PO for something is really, which which is just expected in any other part of the business, is actually quite difficult. And so having that conversation, being understood, and it's it's a tough one to crack. But we we know there's a challenge. We talk to each other about it, and, and we find ways to deal with it. But and that's yeah. that, you, know, you put your finger on it there, and uh, it sometimes it is actually different. Everyone yeah. likes to say we're legal, we're different. Some things are actually generally different. But yeah, and and that's my experience of having these conversations with our customers finance colleagues is once they actually understand the nuances of legal spend, they get their head around why POs are maybe not the perfect fit or the challenges in getting accurately classified data in a usable way or accurately forecasting. A subject close to my heart, but I think that's one of the most exciting things for me about how legal departments can can kind of be more collaborative with the broader business and maybe change their perception, I think, is when you when you're talking their language to a greater extent. And Final question for me, Jeremy, I want to be respectful of your time. Unrelated to the world of, of legal ops, wh- what do you enjoy doing now in your spare time? You said as a kid, you became very sporty and active. Are they still the main uh, yeah, for you? <laughs> well, yeah, my, my my hobby, pastime sport is rowing. I do lots of rowing. I row I row more days than I don't row. And I really enjoy it as I get older. And But my second pastime related to that is the hydration involved. And I do like wine too. So rowing and wine, the perfect mix, right? <laughs> they got to balance each other out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do remember now we were we were chatting. There was a few rowers, I think, at the table. I was not one of them, uh, but uh, yeah. A wonderful pastime, uh, which I'm sure keeps you very fit uh, and active. But Jeremy, thank you so, so much for... Uh, for joining us. I really, really enjoyed our our conversation as ever. Me too. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. 
This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.